Welcome to Prevention is Cure, brought to you by Precure.com, the podcast which brings you the latest in science and practice and challenging mainstream medicine and finding new and exciting ways of having a happier and healthy life. This series is looking specifically at mental health. We've become really concerned about the lack of translation of what science knows into what medicine does. In most societies, including the one I live in, one in five of us will have a serious mental health problem at some stage. The infrastructure, the practice, the gap between treatment and best practice is massive. This podcast series aims to do something about it. Prevention is cure. I'm your host, Professor Grant Schofield. In this week's podcast, we talk with Dr. Robin Youngson. Robin is a really interesting character, and you'll love his journey through, first of all, engineering, and then into medicine as an anesthetist, and his disillusionment and his drive for change at a really high level in the medical system, his journey with medicine with compassion, his journey and story around his daughter's serious injury and how he changed medicine that way, and more recently his move into a trauma therapist and some really important biology that he's become central to and his technique havening, which when I first heard of it, as Robin first heard of it, we just thought was so out there it was ridiculous. Yet, he's started to get data and he's got some fabulous results. This is really worth listening to, work through Robin's story and then see where we get to with the biology and uh, this idea of havening as a, an interesting new idea in psychological therapy. Enjoy. Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight so anaesthetist, you started as anaesthetist, so it's a medical training. Well, no, not really. We have to go back a bit because I was actually an engineer before I became a doctor. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> so my first degree was an engineering degree, a rather academic degree at Cambridge University in England. And um, my father was a doctor and about halfway through that, when I was about 20 or 21, about halfway through my degree, you know, I became a bit more self-aware and kind of interested in what my father was doing and realized that, you know, although, I, you know, I'm a kind of geek and really interested in technical things and engineering and electronics and stuff, um, that um, medicine was something I really wanted to pursue. So I talked to various people about that and they said, well, I, I got good advice, you know, finish your engineering degree and, and take that into medicine because people with dual qualifications often end up doing really interesting stuff. Plus, and, and I realized that to, to fund a medical degree, I was going to need a great deal of money. So I completed my engineering degree and found the highest paid job I could find, which is working in oil exploration around the world um, as a seismic engineer. So that took me to um, West Africa, to Nigeria, where I was for the best part of two years, to the outback of Australia, 
and and then by incredible series of chances to New Zealand, where I met my wife Meredith in 1979. So I d- I did that for three years to save up money to fund my way through medical school. And where did you train? Where did you where did you do your medical training? So I so I took Meredith back with me to England. Um, so I trained in Bristol. So I did my degree in Bristol, and I trained as an anaesthetist in Bristol, um, and got my fellowship of the uh, Royal the Royal College of, of Anaesthetists in England. Um, actually, where I trained turned out to be rather infamous. It was the Royal, it was the Bristol Royal Infirmary, which became the site of one of the biggest scandals in in British medical history of cardiac surgeons that were completely incompetent and led to the death of 120 or 130 babies and small children. And that was that's where I trained in cardiac anaesthetics. <laughs> oh right! Did you, did you end up um, having any knowledge of? No, I wasn't aware of that. And the, the, the storm broke about three years after I left the hospital. Um, but I was certainly raising serious concerns about patient safety and getting into a fair amount of trouble over it. Uh, yeah. But it was a very courageous colleague, a, a consultant anesthetist, who became the, fist, the famous whistleblower. Yeah. And what, what attracts you to, to basically putting people uh, into unconscious states and monitoring them? Well, I, I know there's more, much more than that, probably, excuse my ignorance. Yeah, it's kind, of, it's, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? Because I chose a career where I didn't have to talk to patients. <laughs> and, and now I'm working as a trauma therapist where, you know, <laughs> that's all of my work. And I yeah. think, to be honest, I mean, I had a difficult childhood. My dad was in the military. We moved around an awful lot. I had no friends. I was sent to boarding school, which was a very traumatizing experience. And no, I was actually a pretty traumatized, disconnected, you know, dissociated kind of individual. And I was academically bright and a kind of geek. And and I fell into anesthetics because it just naturally aligned with my kind of engineering interests. And I, in engineering degree, I'd studied about how systems work. So it was intuitive for me to understand how human physiology works and how anesthetic drugs and surgery interact with that and to, you know, play with all these complex machines and I mean, that was the original appeal, and I was kind of invited into it by a professor of engineer, a professor of anesthesia, who turned out that he was an engineer first too. So he kind of got on pretty well. <laughs> and so, right, but it's not, but it's not universally true that you'll be putting people unconscious because you actually had a fair bit to do with with uh, child delivery and childbirth, and that's sure. Well, a different hospitals and anesthesia is by far the biggest specialty and they work in every department in the hospital. So you're right. So you work in maternity, providing pain relief. We work in resuscitation. I mean, we just work right across hospital services. Um, yeah. And, uh, I think, I think the work of an anesthetist, I was, um, at one stage I was involved with the air ambulance service in the mid nineties. And, um, I recall flying a New Zealand patient back home from the USA and we had a long trip across the, the Pacific and we're flying business class so that you've got some room to monitor look at our patient uh, who was very stable. I mean, it was just a kind of a handhold job, but the, the pilot came back into the first class cabin, you know, intrigued about who I was and all these monitoring instruments I had. And we got in conversation and he invited me up to the cockpit. So, so I said to him that you realize that, um, flying a plane and giving an anesthetic are very similar tasks. And he said, well, you know, is that right, really? And I said, yeah, because before you, you take off, you make you do all your pre-flight checks and you make your plans. And then during takeoff, you know, all your numbers change in all your dials and you're really busy and doing lots of stuff. And you get, you know, really busy doing that. And then you've got 
10 hours of level flight across the Pacific, which is boring as anything. And then when you come down to land, you get really busy again and everything changes, you come to land. I said, well, that's the profile of an anesthetic for a long surgery. And at the beginning, you're profoundly changing the patient's physiology and all of the numbers change and you're very busy with lots of tasks, putting your breathing tubes and lines and all the other things and lots of drugs. And then during a long operation, there might not be that much happening. You know, you're just watching the vital signs and adjusting and so on. And then when you wake a patient up, you, you get very busy again and you're profoundly changing the physiology and you're hopefully waking up a patient who's, you know, pretty comfortable and pain-free and physiologically stable after major surgery. And he was kind of nodding and nodding and said, yeah, that sounds like that. And I said, well, what's wrong with your aircraft? He said, pardon? I said, what's wrong with your aircraft? He said, well, there's nothing wrong with it. I said, how many engines have you got? I said, i got four engines. I said, what happens if an engine, you know, breaks? It doesn't work. That's fine. We can fly on three engines. How many hydraulic systems have you got? Oh, we got five of those. You know, what happens if one of those goes down? No, we got four backups. So I said, I want you to tell you about the patient that I'm flying. She's 83 years old, you know. The engine's running on three cylinders going tickety, tickety, tick, tickety, tickety, tick, tick. And all my control lines are really slack. So, you know, I'm trying to keep her on a level flight. And it's like flying through a thunderstorm. And, <laughs> and, and it's really unstable. And not only that, there's a madman out there on the wing with a saw and an axe. And he's cutting bits off the wing. And throwing them off randomly. <laughs> and he's sawing through the main hydraulic line. And I've still got to keep the bitch flying. <laughs> and so he said, Okay, yeah, I think your job's a bit different. <laughs> so, you know, that's anesthetists are the people who keep patients alive, mm. you know, during the surgery. And a lot of patients who have surgery are not fit young patients. They're 80 year olds with cancer that needs treatment, and they've got had three heart attacks and a stroke and high blood pressure and diabetes. And so the anesthetist needs to know an enormous amount about anesthesia and pharmacology and, and all the practical techniques. It's an enormous amount of medicine, so you understand how the medicine's pathology interacts with all of that. And we need to know an enormous amount about of surgery, how the surgery impacts on the patient's physiology. So we're, we're doing a pretty complex task. And, and I, I, I suppose, it's occurred to me as you're speaking that I suppose, you know, almost of all, all of what you've got is the major medical breakthroughs of, of the late 19th and much of the 20th century are really due to the fact that we could actually even start to do operations because we were able to anesthetize and then bring people yeah. back in a, in a reasonable state. Without that, what have you got? Yeah, anesthesia is the major breakthrough in surgery. And it's, I mean, and the modern technology, I mean, it's just astonishing. Yeah. I mean, I, I received that. I mean, three years ago, I had a kidney removed, which is a three and a half hour procedure. And, you know, I woke up in recovery. I had some mild discomfort, you know, nothing I could call pain. Um, I, I took... In, in terms of post-op pain relief, I had two doses of tramadol, which is kind of an opiate. I mean, just two oral doses. Um, I was eating within an hour of surgery, and I walked a kilometer around the ward, according to my Fitbit, you know, on the, the surgery. I mean, that's recovery from a three-hour major operation, you know, which is just due to the extraordinary advances in anesthesia and surgery and minimal invasive surgery and so on. So, yeah. As, as in, you, you moved to New Zealand because Meredith was wanting to come back home at some point. Is that why you came back to New Zealand? <laughs> I, I really not. Uh, I mean, I, I kind of had to leave the UK because I'd, you know, I'd sullied my reputation. I'd become a troublemaker and truth teller and, you know, was really rocking the boat a bit and, and things were getting pretty unpleasant. And I mean, you know, the culture within the UK, if you started raising serious concerns about patient safety or whatever, the, 
you know, the, the, um, the club, you know, unites as a wall to suggest that, of course, no one else seems to have these problems and you got these problems, Dr. Youngson, and maybe you're not competent. And, you know, I mean, I wasn't going to have a career in the UK, basically. So that was one reason for leaving. Yeah. yeah. But also, I, I arranged a job swap with a New Zealand trainee. Um, and so he came to my job for six months and I went to New Zealand and we swapped houses and cars and jobs. And the working conditions in New Zealand were so profoundly better. I mean, I went from working 90 hours a week to 55 hours a week. And well, 90 is astonishing. I mean, how do you even get a good night's sleep, let alone have the rest of your life and uh, deal with children and, and yeah, yeah. relatives and whatnot? I mean, just, just, uh, just insane. Um, I mean, for the years as a junior doctor, you are on duty, you know, all, all of Monday, all of Monday night, all of Tuesday, and then you had a night off, and then Tuesday, Tuesday night, Wednesday. So you only went home and slept every second night. <laughs> yeah, that's extraordinary, isn't it? And we talk about safety and and... And, you know, the profession that probably should know more about human physiology and optimal functioning than anyone else. And that's happening. Amazing. Yeah. So, so Meredith, I mean, we came back to, to New Zealand in, in 1990 and, um, Meredith had all his family, her family here and she, you know, missed them a lot. Um, and I kind of, I kind of presumed that she would just love to come back home and kind of, you know, started planning things in the way that I've tended to do in the past. And then presented a bit of a fait accompli to Meredith. <laughs> and she'd actually made a very, you know, lovely life for herself in England, a very happy time and kind of reinvented herself. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're, we're very, very glad that we came back to New Zealand and it's been a great place to bring up our children. But, um, yeah. Okay, so, so, so moving on with that, I guess the, you, you had some time with health and um, safety quality management, especially through uh, government and establishing in the early days. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I came to New Zealand and I uh, had to do the fellowship exam here all over again, uh, which I did. And, um, yeah, then, I mean, with my, you know, immersion in the hospital kind of culture and systems and everything else as an engineer and understanding systems and how things work, I could just see so many ways in which the hospital system was grossly ineffective or malstructured or what, I mean, there were just huge potentials for improvement. And, um, when I applied for a consultant job at Auckland hospital, I actually put in a business plan, a proposal for how, um, surgical services could be re, you know, kind of re-engineered and, and they were astonished. Management had never seen a specialist apply with a business plan before and actually <laughs> gave me a job. Um, and they gave me an unusual contract, which was 50% clinical care and 50% kind of process redesign. So I got stuck in and started reorganizing things at, at Auckland Hospital and, you know, doing surveys and gathering data and showing we could, you know, make considerable improvements in, in patient safety and effectiveness and, you know, use of resources. Um, and that led, um, um, but that led to a series of frustrations where, you know, even putting projects and gathering data and proving we could make enormous improvements. For some reason, the management was opposed to that or it was threatening to them or whatever. And there were a series of very painful setbacks, you know, where I felt very frustrated because the, the, the proven changes we could improve place that. And they seemed, seemed obvious to you and they would have actually helped well, like, yeah, many resources and pitchy lives. I knew about data collection. I knew about, you know, I did data collection before a change and established how the current system worked and put in place a change and showed it was a great improvement and gathered data on that. And, you know, 
these were, you know, as any, any good engineer would do. And, uh, yeah, it became increasingly frustrating, uh, with opposition from management for a variety of strange reasons. And, and eventually I ended up kind of quitting that role. I mean, it ended up in quite a senior leadership role, trying to push forward, uh, safety improvements. So then, you know, I became aware that there were a lot of, you know, good clinicians around the country who could, you know, knew we could do a lot better. So I thought, well, what are we going to do now? So I, I formed a new national organization called the Clinical Leaders Association of New Zealand and made an attempt to gather together clinical leaders, you know, who could actually work together to begin to improve this system. And this was in the 90s when, you know, the, the um, government was in the throes of trying to turn hospitals into crown enterprises and, you know, privatize things. And, uh, so, you know, we got a bit of funding from the Minister of Health and tried to do some stuff. And, you know, I guess that gave me a little bit of prominence. Um, and so I found myself appointed to a national committee um, looking at quality and safety in healthcare. And, you know, that was, that was a bit like Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> so, <laughs> experiences of working with the Ministry of Health and government. I mean, I was just a doctor. I had no idea. <laughs> what do you make of that bureaucracy then and, and in hindsight now? I, I mean, what, what I see is extraordinary slow pace of change. So as, as part of that work, I got appointed to a World Health Organization International Committee on Patient Safety Solutions and, and sat around a table in Chicago with some of the world's, you know, greatest high patient safety leaders and advocates, which is, you know, kind of exciting. Uh, and I remember, um, putting in place, you know, formal international recommendations for improvements in safety and parts of medicine that were really dangerous. For instance, um, going back, you know, 20 years, the, the, the connections we use for intravenous lines and the connections we use for spinous lines are completely compatible. So it's a very easy mistake to take a medicine that's supposed to be going into the intravenous trip and injected into a spine instead, which might cause paralysis. I mean, that's just so huge. And, and that's presumably happened at some point. Yeah, it's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of times. I mean, there are yeah. hundreds of patients have died or been rendered paraplegic. And it's, it's just a simple human error, which is exactly the same error as, you know, clearing the dinner table and putting the salt and pepper in the fridge instead of the pantry. I mean, it's just that yeah. kind of error. Um, so the obvious solution is to create connectors that are incompatible with each other. So we made a formal international recommendation for that in about 2005, and that was finally implemented in New Zealand in 2020. So wow. it took 15 years. Um, and there were, there were other work that we did in the national committees. For instance, it became very apparent to us that, that we, if we get rid of doctors' handwriting and drug prescriptions and have online, you know, computerized drug prescribing and administration, that we did the calculation that we could save 200 lives a year from preventing, you know, fatal errors with medications and it was an enormous amount of money. Um, and, um, that those, the pilot trial for that was funded $20 million in, the, you know, 2006 or something. Well, so far there's still only one or two hospitals in New Zealand that have electronic drug prescribing and every other hospital still using handwriting. You know. I did to the, to this day. Yeah. 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 It's, it's astonishing. Yeah. 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 And so the, you raised an interesting idea there that, that there is this medical misadventure that happens, uh, and, and there's pretty bad outcomes. Is yeah. there any, is there any view on what that might be for the, you know, in terms of percentage of all 
all deaths? Sure. Well, um, put it this way, um, New Zealand specifically in, in research, specifically in New Zealand, which is going back, you know, 10 or 15 years, I guess, um, showed that I think 12.5% of patients, um, that were admitted to hospital were harmed in the accidentally harmed in the course of healthcare, you know, either before they got to hospital or during the hospital treatment, 12 or mm. one in eight patients, uh, which was pretty much in, aligned with with international research from Harvard and places like that. And in the USA, um, deaths from healthcare error are the third leading cause of death after cancer and heart disease. That's the next biggest cause of death. Well, this is going to go, is that, is that universally true across most health systems? Was that yes. more true in the US? Yeah. No, yeah. it's, it's pretty universal. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I, part of that's because we don't know everything about medicine, you know, I guess, and half of that is because the system yeah. isn't, so, isn't optimized. So the research in New Zealand said that, uh, of all the, the adverse events that happened to patients and um, one third of them were highly preventable. And, you know, there was just obvious causes that you, and solutions about a third of them were moderately preventable. So you might or might not prevent and a third of them were just shit happens. Yeah. You know, there was a complication, which is unknown potential complication, you know, that caused harm, like a, you know, like getting a serious wound infection after surgery or whatever. Uh, so yeah, in 50 years time with different technology and different drugs that might not happen. Uh, but at the current moment, that's, that's, yeah, I mean, we're just working in an extraordinarily complex system where, you know, the typical patient going to hospital will probably meet about a hundred health professionals in the course of, you know, one hospital admission. <laughs> Well, is that right? Is that, is that, is that actually a statistic? That's just, I find that astonishing. I don't know what the number is. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's 50 or something. I mean, it's, yeah. it's just an extraordinary number of people. You might not meet everyone engaged in your care, but you know, the outcomes in healthcare depend on a vast number of, uh, complex interactions. Um, yeah, so we, I ended up being part of a grant, not a major player in it, but it was actually driven by some anesthetists here in the. Matar District Health Board, who were um, mm. interesting not by the surgeons, but they were interested in in this period between diagnosis of uh, colorectal cancer and then the surgery, and saw that as a great opportunity to to get fitter, um, yeah, the you know, preventable death just from the surgery, uh, recovery from the surgery, uh, recovery from the uh, cancer. Um, but what became immediately apparent was the complexity of the treatment pathway and, and the number of places that that advice, uh, even if it was given, could be undermined. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then, then the, the pure complexity of even where you would do it. Uh, I, I find that astonishing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but that's, I mean, there's kind of a use universal problem because, you know, later on, I became much more interested in the aspects of, you know, compassionate caring and the experience of patients in hospital, you know, I guess is being happily married and married to the wonderful Meredith who's been kind of knocking the rough corners off me and, you know, helping me heal from my early life trauma over many years and, you know, lots of life experiences coming back to my humanity and being less of the, you know, the technocratic detached doctor. Uh, well, so let's get into that because this is really what's defined you, I guess, more than anything else in, re in, in the last decade or two. Let's talk about the compassionate medicine. Yeah. So, um, I always, I noticed from when I was in medical school onwards that I had an unusual degree of empathy with the suffering of patients in hospitals. And, and I noticed that 
that my degree of empathy to do with that was a lot different from most of my colleagues. And that puzzled me <laughs> for many decades. But I was just really affected by the suffering I saw of, of patients in hospitals. And as a medical student, as a junior doctor, I spent a great deal of time advocating for patients. And indeed, my, the first book I wrote, I wrote when I was a senior house officer, working about it 90 hours a week. And I have no idea how I ever wrote this book, except it was one, did, it's on call. And in between patient calls, I'd be scribbling, you know, typing away at my computer. But that was a yeah, That's astonishing. Patients that's astonishing. I'll probably be yeah. astonishing. Wow. I, I look back and think, how on earth did I do that? But it was a book for patients coming into hospital for elective surgery, just explaining, you know, what the hell's going on and who are all these strange people and why are they doing this stuff and what will happen to me and what will the experience be like and how do these things work? And I mean, it was just... It was before its time. It was a person, it was a, a guidebook for the lay person about how to survive being in a hospital. And, you know, it was published and uh, sold a few thousand copies and then got remainded. But I think it was published about, yeah, 30 years ago. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So that was, so I was, became an advocate for patients. And, and, um, and a lot of the work trying to do improvement in healthcare, I was an advocate. I tried to get, we have a national quality framework for, improving quality in healthcare and being on the national committee, I tried very, very hard to actually add compassion as a quality of healthcare um, and put that in the national framework. But, you know, that was a bit woo-woo for the, for the committee and I never succeeded. But eventually, I mean, what, what the, you know, the, the event that really made me determined to try to do something about it was the experience of our daughter, Chloe, 18 years old, um, driving her little Toyota Starlet for reasons we'll never know, crossed a scent line on the blind corner and ran into a 15-ton truck. And, you know, her car was changed into one of those, you know, wrecks that you can't possibly, un, you know, know what kind of a car it is. And how was she was alive? It's just an absolute miracle. Um, and so on a Monday morning, we got a phone call saying that our daughter had been critically injured in a car crash and we should get to, you know, Auckland Hospital as soon as possible. That was 2004. And, um, every parents, every parents, the call with no, every parent doesn't no, no, Yeah. So I remember, you know, I remember waiting for a long time in the horrible waiting room in the emergency department. And we didn't know if our daughter was alive or dead or what her injuries were. And, um, what was interesting for me was that my perception of the hospital radically changed because I'd worked in that hospital for years and years and it was a very familiar place you know, where I had a lot of parent authority and, and familiarity and knew lots of people. And yet on that day, as the terrified parent of a critically injured daughter, that place was, you know, horrible and threatening and alien and just ghastly. I mean, it was, you know, really the emotional impact. And, you know, I remember the wedding room. It was a hideous, windowless room, shabby, dirty, used coffee cups on the floor and tall magazines. I mean, it was just a terrible place to to wait for some news and it turned out that she had broken her neck and broken her back and had some facial injuries and lacerations um, and it was to spend three months in hospital in spinal traction and she came under the care of a really wonderful spinal surgery whom I knew very well that I had anesthetized for very many times that was a really compassionate and very you know good surgeon um, and so that gave me confidence and in general the quality of her clinical care was was excellent. Um, but what that hospital did to her as a human being was just utterly beyond belief. 
Um, and, and that just distresses so much. And at the time, I had an enormous amount of power. I was, you know, sitting on a national committee. I had a personal relationship with the Minister of Health. I've been on the executive team of that health board. You know, I just, and yet with all my apparent authority, I couldn't get the hospital to respond to a basic human needs. And I wanted to give some illustrations. So um, she was flat on her back in spinal traction. And the only thing she could see was the little dots in the ceiling tiles of the, of the roof above her. And she couldn't see out the window and she couldn't see a TV. She couldn't read a book or a magazine and she couldn't see the faces of people who came in and touched her sometimes in intimate ways and walked out. And she had no idea who that was unless they leaned right over her because her head was in my and, and this went on for, for months. And this was three months of like complete sensory deprivation and no means of entertaining herself whatsoever. Um, and then, you know, to, to recover from severe injuries, you need the best in nutrition. Uh, so we have a hospital system that delivers a food tray to a room, you know, three times a day and then an hour later takes it away. Well, Chloe's lying on her back, flat on her back. She can't see the food or reach it. And she has facial injuries and needs to be fed very gently and carefully. And half the time there's no one to feed her and the tray was left untouched. Or if people did feed her, they would hurt her or they'd dribble food down her face. And, you know, she'd just feel humiliated and, you know, and the food, she was a vegetarian. So the vegetarian version of hospital food has no nutritional value whatsoever. Well, they, they, you know, it's interesting because hospital nutrition is poor anyway. And then you add a yeah. vegetarian layer and it goes another level of bad yeah. again, doesn't it? So she lost about 10 kilograms of weight in the first month in hospital. I mean, she, she was starving. Yeah, at the time you most need nutrients. Yes, it's it's really ridiculous. So Meredith eventually set up a kitchen in a hospital and attended every single day to prepare her tasty, nutritious food twice a day. Um, and to do that cost us more than a thousand dollars in hospital car parking. But you know we can afford that, but yeah. wow, patients that never got visitors. So those kind of things, and you know, living in living her in excruciating severe pain, you know, and, and when all the staff just start hiding away from you and you just feel completely utterless powerless to do anything about it. And you can't get angry because your daughter is the helpless mercy of the people caring for her and you can't piss them off and you can't get angry and you can't, you know, criticize too much. You have to try and, you know, plead and cajole and, and, you know, just feeling so powerless and so distressed at her experience. And you were, you were sort of gently trying to work around the edges of what you felt a system that you knew all about, but from your, yeah. from your perspective as a father, yeah. trying to care for his daughter, you felt was, was yeah. not delivering on some of the most obvious, most basic needs of a human being. For that, I mean, that, that was, that was the experience that radicalized me. You know, that was my terrorist training. That was my... yeah. <laughs> so, um, I mean, and, and so just, just, just before we move on to your next slide, so just tell us about Chloe recovered. Yes. So yeah. Chloe made a, an astonishing recovery. Um, she was in spi full spinal traction for three months. Uh, with it, she walked unaided out of the hospital seven days after the traction was taken down. Yeah. No rehab. I mean, and that's, and if she hadn't had that nutritional support and, you know, all the communication aids and everything else we did for her us personally, she would have needed months of rehab. It would have cost the DHB another hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. <laughs> It's just, so she's, so she's very well and, um, she's recovered from all her trauma and injuries and is, um, you know, an astonishing young woman doing great work in the world. Um, so yeah, 
Thank you for asking. Well, thanks for sharing with us. The, so, so then you actually spend a lot more time actually, uh, talking. There's a really good Ted talk, which I'll put a link to that Robin delivers this, um, amongst other things very well with, and some of the issues we'll get into around, around, uh, so we took a complaint. Yeah. So we took a complaint to HTC about a breach of human rights because you know, she's got the right to have her rights need and assessed and met and be treated with dignity and everything else. And um, we failed in that case because there was no documentary evidence to support what we were saying because there's nothing in the clinical record about the patient's experience of being in a hospital. And you know the process of inquiry is all about the clinical, the clinical record and the clinical expert judging whether the care was sufficient, et cetera. So we've, we didn't, we didn't get a breach of, you know, a, a patient rights finding, although the commissioner wrote a three page letter of education to the chief executive of the health board, right, you know, raising very serious concerns about stuff that went on. So I thought, well, if you can't get a breach of rights in a case like this, then the law is wrong. So we mounted a national campaign to change the HDC code of rights and to add a new right, the right to be treated with compassion. <laughs> That caused quite a furore, really, <laughs> because all of the professional associations had to give written, you know, um, um, opinions on this. And about oh. half the people thought it was a brilliant idea, and about half the people were appalled by it. So it's hard to know how you'd be appalled by it, though, isn't it? Yes. Well, I won't repeat what the New Zealand Medical Association said as a formal submission because it's not worthy of them, really. But <laughs> um, so. Yeah, so we, we failed in that, but um, anyway, I began reaching out to people internationally and I thought, well, let's just create a, you know, if I can't, if I can't progress this through a national committee with all my power and authority, and if I can't change the law, if I can't do this, you know, I just said, well, maybe we can create a social movement. Maybe we can, maybe we can find another way. So we did. So we, we, um, we eventually came to a decision, Marath and I, we both quit our jobs. We sold our house in Auckland, we downsized. Um, I began to do part-time medical locum work around the country and the rest of the time we were campaigning. I wrote a book called Time to Care. We uh, built a few websites, we launched a social movement and that work has taken us eventually to 15 countries around the world and into many different cultures. And so tell us a little bit more about that journey in this compassion and medicine yeah. area. So, so in, the, in the course of that, you know, I thought, well, when you really need to, I mean, it's, it's just intuitively emotionally obvious that we ought to care with compassion and that's what draws people into healthcare. Uh, but I thought, well, we ought to make a business case for it. We ought to just, you know, have some arguments that, you know, the business managers or funders might, might uh, respond to. So I, so I started just researching all literature and eventually put forward pretty compelling evidence that compassionate caring would be, you know, create dramatically better outcomes for patients, you know, less complications, shorter hospital stay, less pain, less drugs, quicker recovery. I mean, all sorts of um, data on that and would, would solve, would actually pay for itself, would, would save a substantial amount of money. And it gives joy and meaning back to the life of health professionals. So, I mean, there's a really, really compelling case and it was made in a different way. There's a book called Compassionomics written by a professor in the USA who's basically taken a lot of my work and the same references and written it in a different way. And that's, you know, got, you know, some attracted some attention. 
So there was, so we got invited into a lot of different healthcare providers in many different countries by executive teams who thought, well, this is pretty good stuff. And it's, you know, what we're here for and we're, we're keen on it. And we'd, we'd be invited, we'd do a series of presentations and workshops. So feedback from staff would be, you know, very excited and very extremely positive. And the executive team were wanting to talk about next steps and everything else. And it's never been sustainable in a single organization we've worked in. Always, you know, the winter stress, the, the budget cutbacks, the, the beds are overloaded, that, you know, every other priority, you know, takes over. And, um, you know, after 15 years of trying to change the system, we've, we've pretty much given up trying to do that other than supporting individual health professionals to come back to the heart of their practice and find more joy and satisfaction and recover from burnout and, you know, make a better contribution in a broken system. One of the most interesting and I think profound discoveries that I think you talk about being made on that journey um, and I, th I know that you've continued that into your current practice, which we'll talk about shortly, is this idea of not necessarily charging, but asking for a donation uh, or saying, well, what do you think it's worth? Can you tell us a bit about that whole idea and how that even works? I mean, when you first hear this, it sounds like it's going to completely fail. Yeah, well, we, I mean, many, many years of our work in campaigning were actually really very ineffective. I mean, I made a whole pile of mistakes. The, the biggest mistake was that, you know, I became an evangelist <laughs> and uh, tried to persuade people and, and was pretty critical of, you know, doctors and managers that were part of a system that was harming a lot of people. Um, and that wasn't very helpful. And, you know, we began to think more and more deeply about our work and how can we live and promote the work in ways that are just aligned with you know, the deep calling of compassion. And we began to realize that, you know, compassion doesn't live in a transactional business relationship. It's not a transactional action at all. It's something much more profound than, than that. And, you know, how could we align our work in a way that was much more deeply connected to that way of being? So we began to think, well, we're involved in transactional relationships. And when we're invited into an organization, they want to know what our fee is and how much are we going to charge? for this work. And we became more and more uncomfortable with that. So eventually it was Mary's suggestion. She said, well, why don't we take this into the gift economy? And why don't we refuse to quote a price and just invite people to pay us what they think they should pay us? And that's eventually what we did. And so for some right. reason, there's, there's a moment there where you were going, given that's not the world you've been working in going, is that, that going to work? <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, it's, it requires quite a leap of faith. So, I mean, I was getting a fair number of invitations to, you know, please, will you come and speak at our conference in the USA and we'll fly a business class and pay you a fee and so on. And then we'd say, well, actually, we don't charge a fee. You know, we ask for a donation and, um, you know, and instead of, instead of paying us two business class airfares, maybe we could fly economy and, you know, you could, you could make a bigger donation to our work to support our international work and so on. And, uh, what we found out that most organizations we're, we're donating a larger sum of money than we would have asked for in the first place anyways. <laughs> Brilliant. And, and, you know, I've sort of experimented with the gift economy. I mean, some of my books I've just given away uh, and said, well, you can, you can get a free PDF copy, you know, or you can pay me something for it. Um, and, that, and that's more difficult, but there's a sense in which the more books we give away, the more that people buy them. Mm -hmm. and it's just, if you bring generosity into the world, then the world becomes more generous. 
Um, yeah, that's a great great line, isn't it? I, I, I like what you're saying there. And we also we also use crowdfunding. I mean, the one place in the world where our work has been sustained is actually in a city in Kentucky, the city of Louisville. Um, and that work was under the framework of the International Charter for Compassion. Um, and, and a very inspirational mayor, newly elected mayor of that city, decided that the city of Louisville should become a compassionate city and sign up to the charter, engage lots of organizations and businesses and universities and community organizations in his campaign to try to create a more compassionate city. And that had been going for about a year, but there was not a single healthcare organization involved. So one of the leaders of that reached out to us and found my book. I wrote to the publishers and said, you know, is there any chance we can talk to Dr. Yangson? <laughs> and they didn't realize that I am the publisher because it's person <laughs> was a bit surprised when the publisher replied with a personal email saying, oh, hi, I'm Robin and I write the book. <laughs> so we made a series of visits over a number of years and the last visit, um, we went for six weeks and we actually used crowdfunding. So we raised 20,000 US dollars on Indiegogo in, in 30 days and that enabled us to go in service to that city. And I think we did more than 60 workshops, meetings, presentations and events across 31 organizations in six weeks, come wow. at a big community gathering in which community leaders and business leaders and health leaders came together with proposals for projects that they would lead themselves. And we took a step back and, you know, that's grown and grown. And now every year they have a huge public event hosted by the mayor and all the city leaders with 350 people at lunch and giving compassionate caregiver awards. And, you know, the Louisville Medical School is the first medical school that signed up for the Charter of Compassion and, you know, put in place a lot of changes. So. Well, what was interesting is that we have to reframe that word out of the corporation or out of the university or out of the community group, actually into the whole city so that no one owned it. So it was owned mm. by it or not by any individual organization. And that reframing was really important. Okay. So speaking of reframing and rethinking, uh, was it in Kentucky that you first met someone who started talking about some psychological techniques around trauma? <laughs> yeah. So. Hansnip has become a really special friend of ours. There's a guy called Harry Pickens, and he's been a lifelong, you know, coach and healer and trainer. He's also a world-renowned jazz musician. He's six foot eight tall. His hands can stretch. I don't know how many octaves on a piano keyboard. And uh, he, we, he was much involved in this compassion work, and we got to meet him and be inspired by him in that context. And he was telling me about this thing called havening, and he's saying, you know, Robin, you got to learn about this. This is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And so I politely asked, you know, a little bit, and he said, well, you know, the brain is designed to dissolve away traumatic memories, and this can be done in minutes, and you just have to do this kind of soothing touch to different parts of the, of the client, and all their traumatic memories go away, which sounds completely ridiculous. So for two whole years, even though he's a close friend and esteemed colleague, someone I admire very much, I really completely ignored him and wouldn't, I wouldn't look at it. Well, then he wrote an entire book on the topic. Um, and he interviewed the founder and the developer of Havening, who's a medical doctor and researcher and shared some of the science behind it and shared a lot of the stories of the, of the, um, the practitioners and the clients. And so Meredith bought a copy of the book and, and I was quite intrigued and I thought that piqued my curiosity. Um, and then, but in the meantime, your medical brain's going, no, 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 no. Yeah, well, I, I got a little curious. 
Um, but it doesn't seem to be something behind it. And I mean, to be honest, I mean, I, you know, as a, I've got into the whole world of compassionate caring and, and human healing and, you know, working with thousands of health professionals around the world, we, we were hearing a lot of stories of miraculous healing. So we're beginning to realize that human has a capacity for this, but we're not quite sure, you know, how to do it, except that compassion seems to be really important. So, you, so I read the book and made me curious. So I did a Google search. And then I found there was a 15-minute video of Dr. Ronald Rodin treating a client with an extremely severe phobia who would have a panic attack if she tried to drive across any bridge. And this began with a traumatic event and a panic attack with one bridge and a limited phobia to that bridge, which generalized to all bridges. And she lived in somewhere like Miami, which has got hundreds of bridges and waterways. So Right, this is not, not a great place to have a bridge phobia. No, no. So he took her back to the original event, the original trauma, and did this process of 15 minutes where she was doing this particular strange form of touch to herself of rubbing her hands and her arms and face under his direction. Um, but she did, it's not the clinician doing it. She was doing it to herself. She, was, she the, was doing this, it. This the striking of the upper arms yeah, with the, with the yeah, head. So, so he was guiding the process and uh, instructing her in a variety of um, mind games and distractions to take her mind away from the trauma, having initially asked her to remember it. And at the end of 15 minutes, she sat there completely astonished because when she recalled the very traumatic event, she couldn't connect to any of the fear or distress with it at all. So then they got in a car and they drove to the very bridge where it happened. And she drove across the bridge with no emotional response whatsoever. And she's just completely astounded. And I, I watched this and I thought, that's insane. <laughs> I just, I, you know, I really couldn't believe what I was seeing. And then I had an even crazier idea, which is, okay, well, I have, I have a lot of very traumatic events as a doctor, so how about I try it? So I rewound the video, thought, well, I'm just going to copy what they do. And I recalled one of my horrifying events, like the death of a young mother or something like that. And I followed the process for 15 minutes. At the end of 15 minutes, the trauma of my memory had completely vanished. Didn't change the objective facts of the memory. But I, I mean, I sat there just completely stunned thinking, what the hell's going on? This is, you know, I, I just, yeah. So I Googled, okay, where's the next track? Hey, just, just to spell that out, let's just pause there. So you, so you, and when you're talking about the traumatic memory, if you've, you're at work one day, uh, things got pretty yeah. horrible so, and, and, and things, someone's died and there's been a complications and whatnot, uh, and when you go to recall that event or similar events, that triggers the fear, the traumatic yeah. response uh, involuntarily, and that's distressing, right? Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and so, so, so the question is, can you? You're not trying to delete the memory so much as unpair it from that emotional response that's we're, debilitated. Actually, we're actually deleting or erasing all the traumatic aspects because the memory is stored in different places. So there's ordinary objective memory, which is stored in the hippocampus or, you know, whichever part of the brain is just responsible for ordinary memories. And then so, 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 so the woman, so, so, so for you, that's the, you know, attending that woman that day is you remember all of the details of that. Yeah. Yeah. So the objective memory of what happened, I can recall, I could, you know, give you a factual account of all the events that happened. Mm. Prior to doing this process, when I recorded, it, I'd become tearful and distressed and upset and because the trauma of that memory would be re-triggered with the, you know, the thought of that memory 
Um, although I was probably pretty dissociated from it as well, and it's part of our protective mechanism. Yeah. But uh, you know, at the end of that 15 minutes, I could recall that event with no distress whatsoever. And and you know, I see this in clients every day. And does it last? Does it last? It, it seems to be completely permanent. I mean, it's wow. just, so, so, I mean, we can go on and talk a little bit about the science sitting behind this because Dr. Okay, Mann well, let's do that in a sec, but I just want to uh, refer people to, because I think there's another very powerful video now, and it's your yeah. video on YouTube. And so if anyone wants to go and watch this, we'll put the link up, but it, you're, you're going through a havening session, this, this touching yes. therapy, uh, and you're dealing with a South African woman who was in a, yes, a, in a carjacking incident and it's, there's a quite a lot of detail about her. I think her mother was, uh, she was yes. taken out, but her mother remained in the car and, and it's yeah. pretty distressing really. Yeah. So it's a 15 minute video and it's, she very courageously volunteered to have a happening session and be filmed and to share this video internationally. And, and she was, she was held up at gunpoint. She had a pistol pressed to her head and she believed that she was going to get killed. And two weeks before her mother had lost her best friend, was shot dead in a carjacking in the same area just two weeks before. So, you know, it's a very vivid fear for all of them. And she's, this event occurred 30 years ago and she's been, you know, haunted by it for that time and has nightmares and gets frequent fear responses. You know, if she sees a man of a particular kind of description or, you know, all the subconscious triggers. So in the video, we see her recording that event and telling the story and she looks kind of pale and swollen and you see the fear response. And then 12 minutes later, she is laughing and smiling and, you know, just, and, and her visual memory of the event has changed, even though the objective facts haven't, you know, she's completely relieved of the trauma which now, and now when she sees that memory in her mind, it just kind of looks like a comedy and everyone's just dancing around and laughing. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a very powerful video. I, I... I, I watched. I watched it a couple of times, and I, and one thing that struck me was that she was virtually astonished. I think she couldn't believe it. Yeah, yeah. astonishment yeah. is the right is the right word. Yeah, yeah it's just yeah. yeah. And um, so I've been I've been doing a. There isn't very many research. There isn't very much research evidence yet in in support of havening. There's one randomised control trial done in the UK, which took many years to get published. Yeah. Um, um, so I've been conducting some of my own private research and um, it, as a kind of pilot study, because I'd, I'd love to get a randomized controlled trial to kind of prove this. Mm. And so we began wondering what would be a really good kind of research subject. So in, in, conduct, in conversations with the colleagues, we decided that the mothers with childbirth trauma would be a really good topic, a really good subject, because they're otherwise, you know, generally young and fit and, you know, probably don't have a lot of other trauma or illness or anything else to complicate it. Is, is there a feeling about how many, what proportion of women who go through a childbirth end up with some sort of trauma as a result of it? International research, you know, it comes out with a figure between 25 and 30% of all mothers. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's extremely prevalent, especially in hospital delivery. Um, Okay, so you've been working with that population in particular. Yes, so, what have you done? so I've treated 30 mothers, so I just offered free care in return for them, you know, helping with some research. So I, I researched and found a good outcome measure, which is a, a self-reported scale of PTSD symptoms called the impact of events scale. 
um, which is well validated. And I get them to do the scale prior to heading treatment and seven days after heading and then 30 days or 60 days later, a month or two later. Um, and there are a lot of these mothers have pretty severe PTSD. And a number of them had PTSD so severe that that would be predicted to impact on their immune system function. So we're, we're talking about very high levels of symptoms and not being able to ever see anything on TV about childbirth without getting tearful or upset, not being able to meet their pregnant friends, not being able to think about their birth, having, you know, mental numbing dissociation, try not to think about it, intrusive images and stories coming to the mind, sleep disturbance. I mean, you know, these are the kind of range of PTSD symptoms and some of them really severe. Um, Especially around an event in your life where you've brought a, a life into the world and there's potentially yeah, a lot of joy. Yeah, it's a very meaningful event. Yeah. Uh, so, so I've been measuring outcomes, and um, about three quarters of the clients, uh, I think, are essentially cured of their PTSD in one session of Hayden. Wow. So we're taking, we're taking, we're activating that that memory of the event, and then we're going through the process, and we're. 10 or 15 or 20 minutes later, they're sitting there completely stunned and astonished, laughing, smiling, you know, in disbelief that this thing that has haunted them for, you know, one person up to 20 years has just suddenly vanished from their mind. And they can now think of the events without any distress. And the people around them are astonished, like, you know, a client's husband who was completely astonished that 15 minutes after a session, the client was able to talk completely calmly about the birth. When before he described her as like a time ticking time bomb, so the slightest mention would create this eruption of distress and tears. And, and mm. it, was, it was just gone. So, you know, I wanted to make sure is this a, a permanent effect? Um, well, uh, well, what, what, what we should have covered uh, yeah. for people listening is, of course, this is also a result in a career transition of sorts, hasn't it? Yeah, so I've now completely, I no longer have a medical practicing certificate. I now work full-time as a as a trauma therapist in my own clinic in, in Raglan. So, yeah, this is my full-time work. I'm also a trainer in these techniques. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's just, I mean, I've experienced myself for an, you know, a number of times and been able to heal my own trauma, but it's just astonishing to witness. And it's, it's just so much fun as well. I mean, the process of healing is so lighthearted. And, and relaxing and easy and fun and and it just slips away effortlessly you know in most clients in a matter of minutes and and i'd love seeing the astonishment on people's faces i had a recent client um she's a very experienced cancer got a master's in counseling and um she you know without revealing details um many years ago was the victim of some kind of an assault and I don't know the story because I didn't ask him. I don't need to know the details of the memory. I can work, you know, content-free without needing to know. The client will just silently remember it for one minute, which is enough to activate it, then we can work on it. And uh, at the end of 15 or 20 minutes, she was unable to connect to any of the distress of my memory, which she found very strange and astonishing. And she was kind of disbelieving of it. <laughs> I got a series of messages from her over, you know, some days and a week or two, where she kind of tried this out in life to see if things had changed, being quite disbelieving. And she described how she went into Bunnings warehouse and just wandered up and down the aisles saying that she hadn't been able to do that for seven years, because prior to that, if she'd ever, if she'd turn around a corner and come across a man suddenly, she would get a terrible fear response. 
So she actually hadn't been in a Bunnings warehouse for seven years. And she described wandering up and down the aisles, seeing lots of men and having no reaction whatsoever. <laughs> and wrote me this lovely letter of saying, you know, I think this might be real and it's really happening. And oh, that's great. And, you know. So it's, I just want to question you a little bit further about something you said there, because it's not something that would come to my mind immediately when you're talking about trauma therapy. You're going, well, it's, there's a lighthearted, good aspect to it. And when you start to think when we're dealing with trauma and all these outcomes, that it, it might be the opposite of the air to be working. It would pull you down. And Yeah, I think this is just the, the complete opposite of medical practice. Medical practice, you know, doctors do stuff to patients. And the doctor's in charge of everything. And they take responsibility for everything. And you just, doctors feel so burdened by this endless succession of patients, you know, making all these demands for all this chronic disease, mostly which they, you know, can't manage or treat very effectively. And you just end up at the end of the day feeling kind of exhausted and dispirited and, you know, and yet this is completely the opposite because I'm not doing healing to anyone. This is an innate capacity within people and I'm skillfully creating the, the circumstances where there's their own process of healing is rapidly facilitated. And the process itself of dissolving where traumatic memory is conducted with a great deal of humor and laughter and conversations and funny stories and silly games. And, you know, at, I mean, on a full clinic, I'll deal with of six hours of people with made performer. At the end of the day, I'm energized and full of gratitude and astonishment and thinking, God, you know, how can I call that work? This is just the most. And, and can you earn a living out of it? I'm earning a substantial living out of it because clients are telling me, oh my God, that one session has produced more benefit than the last five years of counseling. You know, I mean, we're talking about astonishing life changes. Yeah. About, about 30 or 40 of my clients have signed up for Havening training because it's, they're so astonished by how it's changed their lives that they want to do it. And, you know, we're talking, and we're also talking about a lot of physical illnesses and problems just dissolving away because so many of them have trauma as the original mm. cause. Mm. Uh, and, and I guess if you take a trauma-informed approach to just, just mental health, not a, not just all health, Oops. then uh, people would say that not just the majority, but but almost all uh, yeah. of what we're seeing in mental health has a trauma, should, yeah. needs, needs to be trauma-informed. Well, that's Dr. Gabor Mate would say that all mental health problems and all addictions have their, have their origin in trauma, and I, mm. and I that's true. Mm. Uh, so I'm seeing clients that are that are cured of depression, that are cured of anxiety disorders, that are cured of panic disorders, and that they go, they completely change their life yeah. and become resilient, you know, happy people. Sometimes after decades of misery and and anxiety and depression and admissions to hospital, you know, we're, we're talking about very substantial life changes. Okay, so let's get to the, cut to the chat because this is what. This is what really convinced me. You sent me a paper, yeah, a scientific paper, and and it was a a, a logical descriptions of the of the plausible and known mechanisms that exist around the amygdala and the hippocampus and these interactions. Can you just talk a bit about that because I think and how how this idea of just touching gently and rhythmically could even have anything to do with this. Yeah, sure. So the, this is a work of absolute genius by. Dr. Ronald Rudin, who's a medical doctor and researcher in the, in New York, in, in the USA. And he's, he's been working on this for, for 20 years now. And, and what is, and he has a, 
considerable interest in trauma and addiction. And he's written lots of papers and books on it. Um, and he's got a PhD actually in another, I think, organic chemistry. Um, and um, he became very intrigued by um, seeing it was a demonstration of tapping that seemed to cure a phobia in someone. Um, and um, he began thinking about, well, how can, what's the brain mechanisms that could underpin such a, such a sudden change? And he's relentlessly, doggedly pursued that for, for, you know, many, many years. And basically he's elucidated a theory, which is a complete neuroanatomical pathway of where this occurs in the brain and, and, um, and the, and the underpinning, um, molecular mechanisms. So basically when you go through a traumatic event, there's a part of the brain called the amygdala. Well, we have two amygdalae, but it's mostly the right amygdala, which is our safety system. So it remembers past bad events and serves as a warning system, an alarm system to give us very rapid warning in case we might be facing a threat or a danger again. So and it can learn it in a single, a single traumatic event, because in evolutionary terms, that would be very good to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. So it protects us from lots of threats. Mm. So, um, during a traumatic event, um, we have a, 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 a major stress response. Our brain is filled with high levels of, um, gamma waves, which are the highest frequency brain waves up to about a hundred Hertz or hundred cycles per second. And in the, the lateral body of the amygdala, which is where the sensory information comes in, um, through the thalamus, um, and, um, the first synapse there, um, the, the mechanisms, the, the mechanisms inside the neural cell are frequency sensitive. So, um, when, when that sensory information comes in, the, uh, the nerves are depolarized. It changes the voltage. It opens up some voltage gated calcium channels in the cell membrane. And when there's very fast brain waves in the wave, you get a very fast oscillation of calcium concentration within the cell and that binds with and activates a series of enzymes that then causes within a matter of minutes, hundreds and thousands of receptors to be expressed on the cell surface and then super glued in place with a chemical bond, a phosphate bond, and they're there for the rest of your life. And this, this reaction occurs within minutes. So we all intuitively know that we can be traumatized within minutes and it can affect us for the rest of our life. So he's understood the complete mechanism. So I can know. Yeah. It freezes into place, which is an interesting thing. Um, and if we know anything about classical conditioning, this whole Pavlovian conditioning, just, just the mere passage of time, it doesn't extinguish itself. It's you can go by 30 years and it's still going to be there. Right? More. My, yeah. my world record is 85 years. So wow. I had my mother on her 90th birthday for a horrible trauma that occurred on her first day at school, age five. So for 85 years, she had this highly specific conditioning, you know, trauma memory hardwired into her, and then 10 minutes later it was gone. Okay. So let's talk about how it goes. How does it go? So, so that's, so new connections are made between nerves and we know the location of that. We know the neurotransmitters, we know the receptors, we know the enzymes, we know all of that in the theory. So, um, if. If you have a traumatic memory and I ask you to recall it very briefly, that will activate the nerves that hold that traumatic memory and they're depolarized, that changes the voltage. And then we can start to work on the receptors. Now, what we now need to do is to flood the brain with low frequency brain waves called delta waves. And the only time we normally have high levels of delta waves is during deep sleep, which is also called slow wave sleep. 
So if we can fill the brain with, with delta waves, then that causes a low frequency oscillation of calcium ions within the neural cell. And that activates another set of enzymes. So it activates a phosphatase, which dissolves away the phosphate bond, the superglue that's holding the receptor in the cell membrane. And then another series of enzymes are activated, which grab receptors in the cell membrane, draw them into the cell and dispose of them. And this molecular action occurs for five to eight minutes. And um, that breaks the connection between the sensory information and all the outputs of the traumatic memory, which are the cognitive elements, the stories, the fear, the beliefs, the, the um, emotional responses, the somatosensory reactions, the body stress responses. All those are just disconnected from the sensory information. So a thing that would have been a trigger no longer is a trigger. There's just no response to it. So I've seen many, many clients lose, lose a major trauma, a major phobia in, you know, five to 10 minutes. And, and, and so this, the bit about generating delta waves, like, yes. you, okay, you're in deep sleep. Well, that's not going to help you. No. So, so, so you're, you're doing that manually. So, so this is another, you know, amazing intuitive leap by Dr. Rudin, who noticed that or had an intuition that certain forms of human touch and connection are really, really important for healing. And he noticed that when, when people are nervous waiting for a job interview, they rub their hands up and down on their legs, or they rub their hands together, mm. or they, you know, they draw their hands down over their face, or they do it on the back of the neck. Or if we see someone else distressed, we rub them on the shoulder, that mm. touch. So he became curious about that and worked with a neuroscientist who took lots of research subjects with PTSD into the neuroscience lab, measured the brain waves, and tried different forms of vibration, touch, stimulation, tapping to different areas of the skin, and showed that there were three areas of the skin when they're stroked in a soothing way, very rapidly generate huge levels of delta waves in the brain. It's just really insane to see this happening. And those three areas are soothing stroke to the palms and the hands, a downward stroke on the upper arm and stroking on the face. Now, I'm a bit of a geek. I've got my own brainwave monitor. I've got an app on my iPhone. And, you know, I can meditate and I can make my brain very quiet and the energy level in all the different brainwaves is really low. And then when I start doing the heading touch to myself, then 30 seconds later, there's this massive increase in the delta waves in my brain. It's, it's that quick. And, um, you know, so we're biologically hardwired to respond in a, a way that signals, you know, comfort and safety when we're touched in, in ways that are soothing. And mothers do it to babies and everything else. And this is one of the tragedies of modern medicine and, you know, the modern world is that we've lost so much touch. So, so he realized, so this form of touch can generate data waves. So he put together the protocols. Okay, have a traumatic memory, ask the client to recall it briefly, that activates it. Start this havening touch, which generates the delta waves. And then we don't want the client to be reinforcing that memory. So we'll distract the client with a variety of mind games and distractions. So they're not thinking about it and we'll see what happens. And we do that for six or seven minutes and we take the client back to the memory again and to their astonishment, it seems more distant, softer, less distressing. We do another round of having touch and distractions and go back to it again. And the distress just disappears. Itself, you know, in a matter of minutes. Look, I'm a very skilled observer of physiology. I'm an anesthetist. You know, in the operating room, I'm watching like a hawk of the patient's physiology changes minute by minute with the surgery and the anesthesia, trying to keep it stable. 
And what I'm witnessing in my clients is profound physiological changes in a matter of minutes, right in front of me. You know? mm. And the, yeah. yeah, it's just, and you can, clients can never go back to it. It's just a race. It's like a computer file that doesn't exist anymore. And I, it just seems to be a permanent change and it's immediately effective. It, it, why, how, why is this not more widely known? Well, because uh, we have a culture of medicine, which is all about doing things to patients and patients who are just a passive recipient to them. The, the medical profession is incredibly incurious about human healing and capacity for healing. In fact, it's kind of embarrassing, right? So, you know, if you think about oncologists and surgeons treating patients with cancer, well, there's a group in the States that did a project called Spontaneous Remission that have, you know, found three and a half thousand cases of human beings with advanced cancer, you know, terminal cancer that survived long-term without medical treatment that could possibly explain their survival. And then some of them, you know, at scans 20 years later have no cancer. So there's this human capacity. So it's quite embarrassing when you tell the patient, well, you're going to be dead in two, three months and 20 years later, they're alive and well. So, you know, that's kind of a threat to doctors, you know, knowledge and authority and and there's just a profound incuriosity about the capacity for human healing. We are both so in the mode of dominating and, you know, doing treatments to patients. So, so I think that's one reason. And because, you know, it's kind of woo-woo. I mean, you know, I've been called a few things <laughs> trying to promote this work. And, um, you know, it's just not, this is not scientific. This is non-scientific. You know, it's not evidence-based practice. This is an alternative. This is woo-woo. This, this doesn't exist. It's, you know, blah, blah. Yet, you know, yet, 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 by all accounts, you're the exact opposite of that. Well, my, yeah, I'm fortunate in having a history that makes me a fairly credible <laughs> advocate. And, and also, and I think it's threatening. I mean, I have a number of clients now with severe chronic pain that have cured themselves of pain very rapidly. Okay, so let's just, let's, how does that happen? Because where's the connection there in terms of the treatment? Okay, because when you, when you go through an emotionally traumatic event, then the amygdala stores all the information about the context and the setting and the events that happen, those all become triggers. And then it also stores, like a computer backup, every element of your entire state of being, your mental state, your emotional state, and your body state gets stored. So if you have pain or injury at the time of a traumatic event, that gets stored. So if you reactivate the memory, and or if that memory, traumatic memory is being subconsciously reactivated all the time, you end up with chronic pain. When you delete the trauma, you delete the nerve connections that hold the pain, and the pain just disappears. Or the weakness, or the physical disability, or the neurological signs. I mean, there are a very wide variety of somatic elements to traumatic memories, which are stored as part of the memory. And this explains a great deal of, of, of chronic disease. For instance, fibromyalgia, which mm. is a chronic condition of extreme muscle pain, which is very disabling, goes on for years and years and years, and doctors treat with steroids and all sorts of things. And, um, you know, when we're in a threatening situation, what we do, we've got the fight and flight response, we tense up all our muscles. That muscle tension, you know, neck and shoulders and back and everywhere else gets stored as part of a traumatic memory. If we're reactivating our trauma all the time, we have chronic inescapable stress, then we end up with chronic muscle tension, which then causes fibromyalgia. So if you delete the trauma, then the fibromyalgia goes away. 
or the chronic pain goes away, or the weakness goes away, or the chest tightness goes away, or the, you know, you name it. You know, what's interesting. Last time we talked about this is, uh, in, in the world of your former field, if you're on the edge at the moment, you might be studying, uh, low dose ketamine or, yeah. or you might be looking, look or you might be looking at, uh, you know, various other compounds that have some effects on the brain and people are really, really yeah. excited about this. And, 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 you know, fair enough in some ways it's, it's new treatments and shows some promising effects, but, um, tell me about your response to that. <laughs> well, thanks for the question. So I recall that a few years ago, going to the large anesthesia conference and, you know, my interests are kind of moving away from technological medicine, you know, quite a bit and into healing field. So I thought that some of the presentations of the pain faculty, you know, which are in a side room were probably more interesting. And I heard a presentation about the fact that, um, that one in eight patients who have major surgery end up with severe chronic pain after surgery, one in eight. So, I mean, this is, this is a disaster. So, you know, you have a knee replacement, end up with severe chronic pain in your knee. You know, that's, the surgery was intended to take away the pain, not cause it. So yeah. it's a very high instance and it costs us billions of dollars. So that was, that was alarming to hear that high instance. And then there was a presentation, the next presentation was, well, can we predict which patients, you know, are at risk of this? And yes, we can. It's those who have already have chronic pain, who have pain in more than one part of their body and who catastrophize their pain experience. So we're talking about patients who are traumatized, right? Yeah. You know, these are all emotional and psychological factors, which are the projectors. So we should be designing an emotional or psychological intervention, but no, the, the proposal was, well, let's, let's fund a $5 million multi-center trial into ketamine infusions during surgery to see if we can make a difference to prevent chronic pain. And, and I'm thinking, why? I'm just inside. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, you know, why are we so fixated on trying to just change the chemicals in the brain when, mm. you know, we could do, and, you know, I'd love to do some trials, formal trials on chronic pain. You know, I just think that um, if we got the patients who are at risk of chronic pain after surgery and we haven't away their trauma, that that would be a far more effective intervention and would have much more dramatic results. Mm. So, well, I, I mean, let's put the call out now for that. I mean, I really, you know, I work at a university where I do do research and you're doing this exciting new uh, work. Yeah, it's, and um, yeah, particularly if you're interested in in studying in this area or doing a thesis, yeah. then that would be a great start. We'd support that. I'd support that. Right. Uh, right. Uh, and and if we could take it one step further and you know put in a grant proposal and anyone else is keen to join us on that, I'm keen for that as well. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the obvious first trial to do is is to follow up on my work on childbirth trauma because I remember I've got really good data on that, and it's just yeah. you know it's it's just astonishing and it's. It's a really neat trial because, you know, it's a very well-defined condition. It's an otherwise fit population. And we know from the from the pilot trial, we know what intervention, we know how to screen our clients. We need, need we know who to exclude because of chronic severe trauma of other causes. And we're not, we're not safe. We're not seeing side effects that are. We know, we know what the intervention is. We can describe it in detail. And we know that there's not been a sign any significant abreactions. I mean, I mean, we can predict, we know that we've got a really great outcome measure 
that's very sensitive to what we're trying to achieve. Okay, then what's the, what's the control then? Because I presume you don't want to start getting people to, to redo trauma. Yeah, so I think the control, the simplest control is just a wait list. So you 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 um, recruit 500 people and, uh, you know, half of them you do in the first two months and the other wait two months and then have their treatment and you... Yeah, as long as you get multiple measurement points, then you can do that, can't you? Yeah, and, absolutely. And the me- yeah measurements. So you measure the, the ones... Multiple measure of points, and you measure the ones who are having treatment, the ones who are not having treatment. Um, yeah, so I don't you're, would, you, would, you, would you worry about doing sort of non-delta wave generating touch therapy, and then just actually getting people to relive traumas that are going to be harmful? That would be not good. Yeah, I mean, we, we so we run into significant difficulties in trying to get support for a trial, including ethical committees. So, one of the people I've trained is a consultant psychiatrist who works um, in Auckland. And is very, very keen to start applying, you know, this methodology in her work with young people and mm-hmm. has described a number of cases of extremely distressed young people where she had no tool as a psychiatrist to be able to address this, where havening was really effective. Mm-hmm. And she's made applications to ethical committee to just to do pilot trials and has been repeatedly turned down because the ethical committee is saying, well, it's unethical to do an unproved intervention and a vulnerable population. Um, and these are the kind of, you know, professional barriers that we're facing. Mm. Um, no, I, I think that's an unethical stance in itself because we know that our mental health system is profoundly failing us. We know that many interventions we do are deeply harmful to patients. Mm. And if, if an ethical committee won't allow us to try any new treatments, you know, then we will never have a new treatment. <laughs> it's just, yeah, yeah, it's a catch twenty two situation, isn't it? Yeah. So, yes. so, so, can you you say you you're, you're doing some training with people? Tell us about how that works and who you're training and how, how they go about that and how they would people are interested in this how they start that. So, the the training of these techniques. I mean, most of the people coming to training are established cancers or therapists or doctors. I mean, they're people in the field, and um, it's a brief training of. There's, um, I, there's an online science training course where I've taken all the elements of the scientific theory and put it on an online course on Teachable, which you can do at your own pace. And that's about four to five hours of study. There's a lot of detail in the science to learn. And then there's a, a two-day, very intensive practical training program where people come together and we demonstrate and the people get to practice and so on. And that's very much an experiential training where people are working on their own trauma as well and having their own life-changing experiences during the weekend. And then there's a period of supervised practice where they have to start with, with clients under supervision. And I provide very detailed feedback coaching and supervision on written case histories and some video studies and and make sure that someone is competent to use all the techniques and understands you know how to apply the science and um, is ethical in their practice and so on. And then they get certified as a having practitioner. You could do that in three months if you're fairly determined. You know, of just part-time study, you could do a full-time job and get certified as a practitioner in three months if you wanted to. Okay, so the bit the bit that I'm really curious about is, uh, so you talked about doing the havening on yourself. So you got those those movements, touch your movements yes. yourself, and you get patients to do that on themselves. So, so yes. can you? So and then on the one you did with the South African lady, you were doing the the. Yes. The touch yourself. So, how does that have to work? Who who, who has to do that? Can you do this even online? Can you do that over yeah, Zoom? So or I have I have clients literally all around the world. Yeah. So 
I've worked with a client in Australia, a lady in her 50s who had severe trauma and PTSD after a double lung transplant. Mm. So she's only alive because she's had this very dramatic surgery. Someone else has died to allow her to survive. Mm. Her care was, she was many weeks on ICU. She had terrible complications leading to um, wounds and chronic pain and disability and PTSD. And eventually survived the whole thing and a great deal of survivor guilt. Well, I've never met her in person. We've done, I think, six sessions online. She does her own happening touch and I do it same time. Sit on Zoom like we are, and uh, she is cured of her PTSD and cured of her chronic pain and cured of her disability. And wow. I work as a counselor, so it's highly effective. So, and also I have a variety of resources. I have YouTube videos, which is like a guided meditation process. But I guide people to do the happening touch to themselves and and guide them through a process. And they, those have proven to be remarkably popular, and a lot of people are, you know reporting benefit from that so we can... uh, and there's, sometimes you do do the touch yourself though when you and do you generally do that yourself in person and are there barriers to that 95 uh, percent of the clients that come to my clinic where i'm sitting right now i would apply the touch to them and i'm mindful that i'm a male practitioner and most of my clients are female and 30 or 40 percent of them probably have histories of sexual violence or abuse mm. and it's potentially difficult for to agree to be touched and, you know, have me sit very close, but we just, you know, the word havening means to bring this, it's the characteristic verb from the Nona Haven, which is a place, a safe place. So, you know, we very carefully explain the science about this. We explain the reason for the touch. I very respectfully and gently step-by-step ask permission to come a bit closer to demonstrate the touch to the hands, to the arms, to the face. I never sit in front of a client because a sense of being trapped as part of trauma, and so I sit to the side, and we just do a lot to make it safe. And I have, you know, 95% of my clients agree to come and sit in a chair and allow me to buy the touch, which, you know, and we're physiologically connected together, sitting very close together, um, and, and that's the practice that I enjoy the most, but it's highly effective by a Zoom connection, um, yeah. which, you know, but it's not suitable for everyone. I mean, someone with severe trauma may just freeze and be unable to move and then they can't do that evening touch and they, you know you're kind of stuck and you've got a problem but i've had some clients who've had a a, a, ther- a local therapist or a friend or family member do the evening touch for them in canada or australia or england or ireland while i guide the process oh that's sense. cool yeah yeah oh yeah uh, okay so so and so ha- ha- i'll put some links into your yeah, YouTube's yeah. video. I, I want to put a link into where people can get in touch with you with on, on your Havening yeah. program. What's the site for that? So my, my business is called a Neuroscience of Healing. All one word: NeurosciencesofHealing.com. Yep. Okay, NeurosciencesofHealing.com. So I'll put yeah, that in. There's a great deal of information, you know, on my website. Um, yeah. But I mean, what I'm really excited about is the potential to really transform medicine. So mm. I've started constructing. What I intend to be a five-day training for doctors. So not only are we going to train them in Havening techniques, but we're going to, you know, take all these burnt-out doctors, these GPs that are just exhausted and dispirited and, you know, fed up with the system. And that time we're going to heal a lot of their trauma. We're going to lift them out of burnout. They're going to experience the most astonishing life changes themselves. We're going to teach them more about the science of trauma. 
we're going to teach them about compassionate caring and about a complete different way of relating to patients. We're going to teach them about mind-body medicine. And we're going to give them the tools to completely transform the practice and say, well, you know, just make a gradual change and cut back your hours as a GP and spend one day a week doing this happening and see what happens. Because you might find that a lot of your chronic patients with anxiety and, and depression and fibromyalgia and chronic and IBS and headaches and mm. rashes and pelvic pain and everything else, eventually you're going to get cured and get better, you know, which would be nice. And, you know, then you can expand your practice in this different way. So that's, I'm actually planning that now to run a five day retreat for doctors because, you know, there's so many conditions that present to GPs like chronic depression, chronic anxiety, chronic back pain, you know, headaches, tension headaches, migraines, chronic sinusitis, chronic pelvic pain, IBS. Oh, so let's get into some of the IBS and the autoimmune stuff to finish with, because that's, I've forgotten about that, but you've told me quite a lot about that in the past, and that, that was fascinating. So just tell me how, what, what you think the connection is there. Well, I mean, the, the gut is profoundly connected to our, to our emotions and to our immune system. I mean, you, you're probably aware of the multiple brain theory. So we've got yeah. a, a brain in our head, we've got a neural network of brain around our heart, and we've got a neural network very substantial in our gut. And, um, you know, we learn with wisdom that we make better life decisions with our heart rather than our head. We use our intuition. And, you know, we talk about gutsy leaders and about, you know, I really need to digest that for a while. And, you know, we kind of make decisions with our gut as well. And the gut is our sense of identity and, and our courage. Um, and it's profoundly connected to the immune system. And during havening therapy, when, you know, we've deleted, we've erased some trauma and, and dealt with some painful feelings, and, and now we're starting to shift some self-beliefs, like self-worth. So we take clients through a process to strengthen their sense of self-worth. You know, we might ask them, say, well, what if I am worthy? Just as the question. And, you know, I'll get the client to say that, and then I hear the gut go, Mm. And then I say, what if I'm worthy? I mean, I'm actually having a conversation with a client's gut. The gut is peristalsing and responding to that statement. It is processing the belief. And I mean, it's just extraordinary. And um, yeah, I've helped clients with, you know, immunological problems and guts that won't work and allergies that have just dissolved away, even major allergies, which is really surprising to me. You know, it just seems our immune system and our emotional system are profoundly connected. I mean, our immune system is trying to figure out what's me and what's not me, right? Mm. So, oh, have we started? I've lost you again. It's profoundly better. And just stuff, you know, the lining of the gut is where the outside world meets us. Mm. And again, it's that, that barrier. So it's all connected together. Um, so what one of, I mean, I have a lot of trainees I'm supervising and one had a lady with severe diabetes with very poor control, type two diabetes, her blood sugars were typically 15 to 25, which is, you know, what to be less. Yeah. Than way, way off. Yeah. Yeah. On a lot of medication, we should do two havening and this person has their own blood glucose monitor, which is hooked up electronically to a diabetic clinic. So they get, you know, records printed out on the computer. And she showed me the chart where after two havening sessions, her blood glucose halved. And, you know, and an HbA1c, which is a long-term glucose, has come from 90 down to 57 after two sessions of havening. 
because we've taken away the stress, we've taken away the cortisol and no her glucose metabolism is. Yeah, well, that's, that's a really good point, isn't it? Because you, you, you add adrenaline and cortisol into, uh, into the mix and your insulin resistance, so therefore your response to the exact same meal goes way up. It's a completely different physiology. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I just thought of, you know, 70% of all the conditions presenting to GPs could potentially be hugely ameliorated and potentially even cured. It's sitting behind addictions. So I, you know, have examples mm. had a client who was about to destroy his life with binge drinking, who's no longer binge drinking. Well, as part of that way, that's, you know, the, the, that substance misuse and then the eventual addiction is, is, is simply yeah. turning away to hide from that, from those feelings and emotions. That yeah, we're trying to treat that chronic inescapable pain and distress. Yeah. yeah. Trauma and it just goes away. Right, so what, my, my, my one last curiosity is that you've turned away from some of these traumas so much or you experienced them before you're even fully verbal. And so you don't actually have a full recollection of the events. That's correct. Is there still some way you can deal with that? Yeah, there is because, um, when I get a client, there's, you know, there's a kind of life story. You hear their symptoms and life problems and difficulties, and that gives you intuition into kind of early life events that might've caused that, you know, abandonment or betrayal or abuse or whatever. And, and that recurs throughout their whole life. And, you know, each kind of trauma theme is organized in the same neural network. So if you work on a current, you know, adult life event of, you know, trauma or abuse, and dissolve that away. You're starting to dissolve away the neural networks that was formed in the early childhood years as well. So right. we, it, it's take, it might take a bit longer to work through that. Yeah. Yeah. So there are some clients that are, you know, are very complex that need, I mean, I've worked for more than a year with some clients, but I'm, you know, I'm talking about really serious major trauma that's um, extremely disordered lives and eventually, you know, just transformation of their lives. So there are some clients that are, and, and the clients with, Severe early life trauma, the most difficult to deal with, but we just were, you know, I don't try to figure it out. I don't make a strategy because every client has their own healing intuitive intelligence and, you know, whatever is presenting, I'll start to work with. And it's like doing archeology. span We gradually dig and dig down through the layers and we get to the older and older stuff. And it just emerges out of the subconscious bit by bit and in a way that's just you know, the most effective and safe for the client. I don't have to figure that out. I just have to pay attention and create the safe place for that to happen. And, uh, yeah, we just, we just quietly and patiently work away. And you see the client gradually building more and more resilience, letting go of trauma, losing symptoms, physical health improving bit by bit. And, you know, sometimes I use outcome measures like there's the Warwick Edinburgh a mental well-being scale is a really mm. nice validated scale of mental well-being that the researchers say a change of score of three is clinically significant. The total score is 70. Well, I'm seeing a change as a score of 20 or 30 clients mm. over a period of time. So uh, we're just documenting really fundamental changes in people's lives. So yeah, we just. Well, it's an astonishing conversation, frankly. Uh, so thanks for coming on. It's a, um, a lot of fun. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, how privileged and how exciting to, you know, have a begin a new career in your mid sixties and something that's so energizing and exciting and, and so much fun to do. And, um, just, just the most astonishing and most gratifying work I've ever done as a doctor. 
And just every single day I'm seeing results that are just so astonishing and so gratifying. I mean, I just, I truly feel blessed. I mean, it really is. And it's, it's a lot of fun to teach this. Yeah, well, I'm, I, I'm looking forward to learning even more about it. I'm really excited about it. And I think I'd love to be involved in in that clinical trial in, in some way that I could help. Well, with, let's, do that. let's do that. Because we yeah. just, been, you know, we'd really just need to get the medical profession to wake up and pay attention to this. I mean, I'm training more and more doctors. I did yeah. one training course just for doctors. We had 10 doctors. And, uh, yeah, in a couple of weeks' time, I'm training all of the school counsellors at a high school in Auckland, every single one of them, they're going to train the whole lot in the evening. That will transform the, the culture of that school, I'm sure. I mean, just, oh, that's what, that's, that's great. Yeah. So, yeah. No, it's small beginnings. Um, three years ago, I was only the second certified practitioner in the whole of New Zealand and no one had ever heard of evening. No, it's, you know, my referral network. So, Word of mouth is reaching very far, and I'm getting a lot of professionals coming saying, "Hey, look, I really, really want to train in this." Yeah, well, I, I just I, I mentioned it before we start this. I'm hoping one of our pre-cure health coaches or mental health coaches will take up the opportunity to learn habiting as well, and um, many of those will be other will be health professionals as well. So they'll be bringing both those coaching skills, um, some of the lifestyle medicine, and then to this. Yeah, integrates beautifully with you know all those different kinds of skill sets so mm. but you know thank you so much for the opportunity to have this conversation and share this wonderful new world with some other people so yeah, yeah. i look forward to hearing from some of your listeners okay well thanks robin you've been listening to prevention is cure brought to you by precure.com with me professor grant schofield at precure we're developing a way to help medicine help change the world. We're filling that gap. We're helping train health coaches and mental health coaches. We're bringing short but effective behavior change programs over 29 days to you to help you learn for yourself and help others as well be healthier. We're trying to create a community of like-minded people, people like you who want to use the latest science and practice to change lives for the better. Join us at precure.com. Get involved in our communities. We'd love to have you along for the ride. Precure.com. Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight